Gangstasy stands for more than just a piece of fabric with its non-binary streetwear. Through Eve, the brand's inspirational founder, they use trendy streetwear to inspire those who don't subscribe to a binary approach to gender. We chat about her humbling journey, why sustainability was a non-negotiable for her brand, and unpack what it means to be non-binary or LGBTQI in Australia. It was a real eye-opener for me, and I hope it helps to broaden your perspective too. And don't forget to check Gangstasy on Stride today for Australia's coolest non-binary streetwear. And lastly, just a warning that we discuss some issues that some may find confronting and or hard to listen to. We would love for you to listen and learn more, but we respect your position regardless. So tell us a bit about Eve and Gangstasy. Um, I'll start with Gangstasy because that seems a bit easier. <laughs> um, I started yeah, the yeah. business... Um, probably about must have been just over a year after my mum died. Um, and I, I think okay. that was a big, it was definitely a big motivator in me finally starting the business. Cause I had had another business that I was running um, before she got sick. And then I stopped doing that to look after her. Um, okay. And then, yeah, after she passed away, I realized that, like one of the things that I'd always really wanted to do was to start a fashion label, but I'd never really done it because I kind of talked myself out of it. Basically I was like, there's so many other fashion labels around and, you know, um, you know, those kind of things that you do like very um, tall poppy syndroming yourself (laughs) before you've even started something. And, but then after my mom died, I kind of realized life is very short and you should do the things that you love and do them you know, now and just see how they go rather than trying to wait until they're perfect. And cause that can never, like sometimes that doesn't happen and then you don't get to do them. Yep. So that was kind of the main motivator in me actually getting brave and starting this business as well as the fact that, you know, when she passed away, she left me some of what was left of her super money and yep. um, my, my dad had died the year before. So he'd done the same. And so I had enough capital to start a business and really work on it full time. Um, so that, yeah, I guess was a massive help in being able to do that as well as the, the emotional booster of having been through those experiences. Yep. Um, and then the non-binary thing, like how Gangster C ended up being a non-binary label, I guess is just that as I started doing the business, I then did a, um, a fashion accelerator course through the QUT creative enterprise, the CEA program, um, which is now called fashion 360. Um, And that was a six-month business accelerator for people who were either starting their business or pivoting their business, um, particularly businesses in relation to fashion. And so through that process, they kind of helped me to hone what exactly my product was because I kind of knew the stuff that I wanted to make, but I wasn't very good at saying, you know, like this is the kind of niche that I fit within. And so doing that program really helped me kind of define the niche and realize that what I was making was clothing for non-binary folk um and it kind of helped me to realize too that I actually am a non-binary person okay I don't think I'd ever really labeled myself in that way before I'd always felt like I was a person on the outside but I didn't really have actual descriptors for that okay I think that kind of all was happening as I was creating the brand and working on the pieces that I would make for my first collection okay Oh, fascinating. And um, first of all, I just want to say my condolences to you and your family, and I appreciate how brave you are in, in sharing that story. 
Um, and, and then secondly, I'd like to learn a bit more um, about yourself. Now, you've spoken about your personal journey um, with Gangster and, and being sort of a non-binary uh, streetwear and fashion label. But you, you yourself, have you always been into the fashion industry? Is this something that you maybe people could have picked you were doing when you were a teenager? Like, how did you get to, to that niche of your career? Um, yeah, I've always really been into, well, pretty much all things creative, but especially yeah. things that I would make with my hands. Yeah. Um, and when I was young, I used to make all my, like I had dolls and things I'd make dolls clothes. And, um, I used to also really like building things out of wood and stuff like that. So I've always been like a very tactile kind of okay. um, engineering kind of focused kind of brain. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I've always also been very weird and kind of on the outskirts. And so as I got older, um, kind of like in my teen years and stuff, I would make a lot of my own clothing because okay. I didn't really feel like the clothing that I could get in shops represented me particularly well. Um, and my Nana had taught me how to sew when I was a kid. So I was kind of using that skill then. And my auntie was also really into fashion. She used to, um, get me like the Vogue magazines and stuff like that for my birthday. So I think that kind of really helped to nurture that particular side of my creativity. And um, yeah, it was something that I was really passionate about in my teen years. I was just kind of extremely anxious and very lacking in self-confidence in terms of actually pursuing that for a long time. And then after school, I did do a course at TAFE in fashion, which I really loved. And I got to learn how to use industrial sewing machines and do a bit of pattern making and that kind of thing. Um, And I think that's when I first kind of realized about the sustainability element to the fashion industry. I started kind of seeing just how much waste was involved in the industry. And I couldn't quite see at that particular time because this was like the early 2000s and, you know, in Brisbane. So there wasn't a lot of talk around sustainability at that time, at least not in the circles that I was in. And I wasn't a particularly good researcher at that time either. So I think at that time when I was 18, I was like really into doing fashion, but I just couldn't really kind of come to terms with the ethics of the fashion industry. And so then I kind of followed a few different paths before I came back to fashion, you know, this kind of, four or five years ago kind of thing. Yeah, interesting. Well, you, you're pretty much stealing my uh, second question here, which is going to be what inspired you to support the non-binary, non-binary movement through sustainable fashion. So um, yeah, elaborate, elaborate a lot more upon that sort of the, yeah, that what, what inspired you to do that? Yeah, well, I guess, like I grew up, um, I grew up in Mooloola Valley, which is um, gubby gubby country. Um, and I grew up on like right next to a river. So I was, and like my parents are very, um, socially and environmentally conscious people. That's why they kind of, and we were homeschooled for primary school when we were kids. Um, and they did that because they felt it was so important to spend a lot of time in nature and to spend a lot of time doing things like learning how to grow food and interacting with people who are of different age groups rather than kind of being, um, you know, forced to only interact with people who are exactly the same age as you yeah. in a very kind of specific context. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that had a massive impact on 
the way that I view the world and the way that I wanted to participate in society in terms of, you know, when I did decide that fashion was something that I wanted to do, well, then all of those things were very much a part of the way that I was looking at that, um, the system. And as an, yeah, as a, as like, um, yeah, when I was thinking about how I would kind of do those things, I was always very conscious about the fabrics that I would be using and how I would make something that, would be creatively awesome but wouldn't have a negative impact on the environment because yeah, yeah the environment was as far as I was concerned basically my family so yeah. <laughs> I didn't want yeah. anything that would harm it yeah, yeah nothing that would obviously negatively harm it yeah so I yeah. guess yeah when I decided to do my label it just yeah it was almost like the sustainability thing for me was a given like at that time yeah. I'd been um, like while my mum was sick and then afterwards I'd be doing heaps and heaps of research about sustainable fashion and other sustainable labels and I'd already kind of like made a pretty strong commitment to myself that I wasn't going to be buying anything new that wasn't made sustainably and I was kind of a pretty obsessive about how much research I would do for different companies before I would buy stuff from okay. them kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it was like, yeah, I wasn't going to do any – when I started my own label, I wasn't going to do – anything other than what I was expecting other brands to do for me when I was buying things from them. For sure. Yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Okay. No, that, 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 that's fantastic. You know, there's always humbling to hear a lot of people who do um, create sustainable fashion labels. It's, it's a, they feel more compelled internally to do it just by their yeah. own values and how they want to live their lives. And funnily enough, there's a lot of customers out there who share those values. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the thing that I've found really interesting is just like particularly in Australia, how difficult that is to do. Okay. Like, from if you're a production using, point of view? Yeah, from a production point of view. And when you're a small scale business, like if you want to make, you know, a few size runs in something that's the same, you know, like when, because I can, there's quite easy to do things using, you know, vintage and off-cut fabrics and things like that, but you often yeah. can't get very big pieces of those at a time. Yeah. So it means that you can only make one or two sizes and then you have to have this difficult decision of, well, which size is because yeah. I, don't, I want to be size inclusive. So if I only make an 8 and a 12 and a 16, well, then the size 10 and the size 14 person and the size 18 plus person or 6 minus person don't yeah. don't get an outfit kind of thing. Yeah, um, so that's quite difficult. But then when you do get into that, um, you know, like when you've got the financial backing to be able to invest in, you know, rolls of fabric, you do still have to have that um, buying power to be able to get things that are sustainably made for a price that is within a range that pe- most people can afford to pay. Um, yeah, so that's been kind of an interesting challenge that I hadn't really, um, you know, when I was kind of, doing all that research about other brands, I had very high expectations of um, what I kind of wanted them to be doing. And then when I started my label, I realized just how hard that is to do, to be able yeah. to source all of those fabrics and particularly all the little extra bits. Yeah. Like there are some things like, for example, zips um, and buttons that we just, we don't make them in Australia and where they, like they're pretty much all made in China, the ones that I've kind of been able to source Um, and you know I kind of like do my best to make sure that I source them from a like 
company that has pictures of their factory and pictures of their workers. So you can kind of get the feeling of like, oh, yeah, that looks like an okay place to work and it seems like they're doing the right thing. But, you know, unless you go there, you don't know for sure what they're actually doing there. Yeah. Hope that they've been honest and that you're doing, you know, you know, you're doing the best that you can, but that's all that you can do when you're this far away kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I guess that's where like third party certifications, you know, like RAP or fair trade, um, are really helpful because like you said you can't you can't visit these factories especially in you know during the covid period yeah um, yeah so and uh, unfortunately china doesn't have the best human human rights record um so yeah i guess you have to tread carefully um, yeah 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 sure and just sort of moving forward now i'd love to discuss some of the deeper uh topics behind uh gangster sea um, yep. Before we get into that, I'd love for you to just to elaborate for for those listening who may not be as aware about the non-binary movement, um, and what you know who these people are, what they stand for, and what they're, they're what they're fighting for. Would you know just elaborate a bit more um, about you know what it means to be non-binary? Um, just people out there who maybe don't fully understand to get a, a greater appreciation. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that as with anything like that. Um, it's difficult to speak on the behalf of any other person. Like I can yeah. only really speak about my specific experience of being non-binary, but I think in a general sense, it's just kind of on the spectrum of people not wanting to be boxed in a an aesthetic or a um, – how do I word this well – it's like um, because gender is such a strong construct, particularly in, I mean, in, in a lot of societies, but particularly in Western society and our society yeah. is a patriarchal society. So there are really strong um, ideas about how a quote unquote woman should behave and how a man should behave. And in yeah. the Western context, which is, you know, basically influenced by Christianity and Catholicism, the concept yeah. that, there is only man and woman and yeah. there are, you know, those very specific ways that those two people should behave and that they should also only interact with one another for the sake of procreation, because that is the way that God wanted it. Yeah. Um, so even though in Australia, we aren't a religious society, that original kind of very strong indoctrination still kind of filters down in the way that we treat people in society in relation to gender and those kinds of things. So I think basically yeah. the concept of wanting to identify as non-binary is basically trying to dismantle those systems of oppression and dismantle those ideas that are so restrictive mm. on all of us, not just folk who identify as non-binary, but pe- even people who do identify as a heterosexual woman or a heterosexual man. Those yeah. um, constructs around gender are very repressive for all of us because yeah. it says, you know, if you are a woman, you must be soft and dainty and, oh, if you're aggressive, well, suddenly that makes you less attractive, which is not something that a woman should want to be. And, yeah. you know, if you're a man, well, you're supposed to be strong and hard and, oh, if you suddenly become playful and childlike, that makes you weaker and that's not what you're supposed mm. to be as a man. Like those yeah. kinds of things are really damaging whether or yeah. not you identify as a non-binary person. So I think at the core, there's a lot of that stuff is going on. But then yeah. there are also for other people, there's more of the kind of the intersex, the trans people who have yep. 
on top of that, you know, they're also breaking down the societal constructs about what a quote unquote man or woman or neither should be. But there's also this extra layer of the fact that they actually feel that they've been born into a body that doesn't feel authentic to them. And so they have a whole different journey of trying to explore and decide how they can then move through life. Yeah. This kind of form that they've been born into that doesn't quite feel right to them. And that's something that I can't speak for myself because that's not my my journey. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. And and I appreciate sensitivity on the issue in that, you know, you can't speak for um other people, you're speaking for yourself. And um, you know, it's I guess we are speaking a bit more generally here, but I guess overall if if we were to um try to summarize people who are being, you know, uh, newly exposed to this, like my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, is that sort of the non-binary movement just uh, it takes a more uh, fluid and less structured approach to gender yeah um, would that yeah. be sort of a, a, a simple way like I know, I know it's a quite a complex issue um, yeah would... for sure yeah I think that's yeah. a good way of putting it for me yeah. like ultimately and I guess that's kind of the a big part of the work that I'm doing with Gangstasy as well is for me it's ultimately about liberation it's about being able to be exactly the way that you are and be able to be you know who you are authentically and that might change from day to day and have people accept you for that and for every form of yourself yeah because yeah. you are who you are, you know, you're just, you shouldn't have to be performing in a certain way or living up to certain standards that someone else probably yeah. to be able to yeah. get respect and be treated like a human being. I think everyone deserves to be treated with love and respect just for existing. Yeah, 100%. And I, and I think just sort of piggybacking on that, I think it's a dangerous thing to be pigeonholed, um, whether it be, um, you know, your gender, your sex, your race, your religion, Exactly. Um, sexuality, like, yeah, I think we, um, yeah, we, we can exist a lot more, uh, yeah, freely. And I think the non binary movement's a, a great example of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just trying to bring things, um, you know, back home to our shores in Australia. And, you know, this is a tough question, uh, sort of two questions in one that I'm about to ask you, Eve. But, um, how would you describe the situation in Australia for our non binary and LGBTQI community? And, Building on that, what can individuals and lawmakers do to help? Um, that is so a really tough your, question. Yeah, chuck on your political hat right now. <laughs> uh, um, look, I think <laughs> the more that I study politics and society, the more that I realise it's so much more complicated than I ever thought. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean... I think lawmaking for sure has a place. Like, I mean, yeah. I think any anti-hate laws are really great. <laughs> Punishing people yeah. for hate crimes is awesome because, yeah. I mean, well, it's not awesome. Nobody, we don't really want to be punishing anybody. But, I mean, I'm not generally for lawmaking because I think lawmaking is one of those things that, um, like a lot of things in our society, it, like, stops us from being individual conscious like actively conscious thinking beings kind of making decisions at a time based on what's happening in front of us and all of the different complexities that are involved in those things that are happening right in front of us. Because I think, you know, when you have a law, like it's illegal to turn right at this point in the road, Mm. but you know, at some point in time, it might be that 
there's a tree falling across the road or like there's a person running across the road and the only way for you to not hit that person is to turn, do the illegal turn. Mm. So, I mean, like by law, you've done something illegal, but you save somebody's life because in real life, if you'd done the thing that was the legal thing, you would have created harm. Um, And so I think that some of those laws, like the anti-hate crime laws, for example, definitely serve a purpose because I think people in that particular frame of mind struggle to see complexity and they struggle to understand and be able to live within complexity. And I think that's a big part of the things of the thinking that fuels hate crimes is people really being quite closed minded and not having that ability to see outside of a certain set of knowledge or understanding or ways of being. Um, So the reason why I think that's such a complicated thing to answer is for me, what I think, would help to change society to be more accepting of say non-binary folk, just as an example, is people generally becoming more open-minded, generally becoming more educated, generally becoming more self-loving and self-accepting. And when they are in more of that state of mind, they're more likely to not really be bothered about what other people are doing, or if they are kind of, curious about it or something they're going to ask questions rather than create like past judgment and you know there's going to be just a different way that they'll look at it because I think that's what happens that you know when you become more educated and when you accept yourself for who you are well then you're more accepting of other people and you're more curious about other people and you're more able to kind of ask good questions and take on that learning and then your worldview opens up more and more. It's like the more that your worldview opens up, the less likely you are to damn people for the choices that they make in their life or for the things that they've done in the past or whatever it is, because you know that they're human. And as humans, we're all fallible at some point in time because we're all just learning and trying to grow and do our best and be better. But, you know, we also make mistakes in the process. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And one of the sort of, um, message I've got from that is just sort of broadening your horizons a lot more and you're yeah, being exposed to people from all different walks of life because um, my, my opinion on, on sort of most discrimination in the world is it, it just comes from a lack of exposure to these types of people. Yeah. Um, so whether it be, again, I don't want to generalise the other topics as well, but if we use race as an example, if someone has a, you know, an unwarranted prejudice around a certain race, it's usually because they've been fed a narrative that's not true or they've been exposed to certain things that that generate this, um, you know, these views. Whereas yeah. I dare say, if they're exposed to these people or these groups who they deem to be lesser, you know, I'm putting those in air quotes, um, yeah. then they'll see they're just like them, um, but they may have a different part of their identity that's not the same as them. Um, yeah, for sure. And is that something you'd probably um, share as well when it comes to non-binary LGBTQI community, that people out there who maybe, you know, aren't as progressive, maybe they've got to start having these conversations with these people and expose themselves to them and understanding their journey a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, from my perspective, I find like, I actually find it really confusing thinking about, I mean, in any of those kind of prejudices, yeah, what it is exactly that people don't like (laughs) like yeah unless like with the the only exception of like 
I can at least understand how maybe with, say, religion or particular cultures or something, you know, it usually boils down to, say, like the two countries that once were warring against one another and then because of the war and the horrors of war, they then after that don't like people from that particular area because, well, so-and-so killed my family and then we killed their family and that kind of thing. That I can at least be like, okay, cool. Well, you know, someone killed their family and they were a bit angry and they were a bit sheltered. And so they thought, well, that's all people like that are likely to try and kill my family or something. Um, But yeah, when it comes to things like queer folk, like I just can't think of anything that queer folk have done to make people hate them. It's just something that I really can't get my head around I guess maybe religious groups feel like they're a threat to their way of life um just by being liberated perhaps or or being um yeah I'm not really quite sure so it's hard for me to yeah it's hard for me to kind of work out how we could fix that problem when I don't understand the problem yeah that makes sense yeah, I think if you knew the answer to that problem, you'd be uh, have a Nobel Peace Prize in about a couple of months. So, um, <laughs> yeah, if, maybe. If, if, you, if you do figure out the answer, be sure to let us know because, um, yeah, I, I think there's uh, billions of people around the world who'd love love for that problem to be solved. Yeah, um, yeah. But no, yeah, that's how I've gotten your, to the um, the self love answer basically because I feel like with a lot of people, particularly say you know, for example, using that same example of like people in certain religious groups who, you know, feel anger towards people who are gay or queer or non-binary or whatever, because it doesn't fit within their idea of God says only this is correct. Yeah. Um, And anything else must be the work of the devil. Um, You know, I think if, because a lot of people end up getting so drawn into religion because for some reason or other, they're not happy like their lives are difficult or they don't like themselves for some reason or they've been through some really difficult ordeal and then they turn to the church to give them answers to try and say, well, you know, everything is going to be okay because in the end God will save you and you'll got to go to heaven. But you just as long as you just follow these set of rules, then everything is going to be okay. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah. you know, it, coming from those kinds of – because those seem to be the big kind of – the ones that I've at least come across the big attacks against the queer community is mostly religious groups saying that they're, that we're not okay because we don't fit within their um, constructs and we're therefore the work of the devil. Um, Yeah. So that's how I get to the kind of self-love answer about that. Because yeah. if you have more love in your heart, then you have more ability to accept others for what they are. Hundred percent. Yeah. No. That's uh, fascinating. Very humbling advice, and I think it's something that we we can all apply uh, a lot more in our lives. I know I certainly can. So, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, and then, sort of the second last question that I'd like to ask is, what's one common misconception about the non-binary? slash LGBTQI community that you'd like to address? Um, Yeah, see, that one I think comes back to that same question before of that, like, the the non-binary community is just so 
vastly unique. Like each non-binary person is so different to one another. Like I know, obviously I know quite a few non-binary folk and we have things in common, but we also have a lot of things that are different about us. Kind of the same as like, It'd be like me being like, what is a common misconception about straight men? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, like how would you yeah. answer that question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I guess what it comes down to, um, I think it's like most things in life too, like, you know, one part of your identity doesn't define you. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, you don't want to, doesn't it, but I guess the, the gist of what I was trying to answer that question, Eve, is, you know, sometimes there's certain myths about certain groups or there's certain um, uh, prejudices or there's, there's certain things that unless you're exposed to them enough, you don't really appreciate it. Um, so, like, you know, are there any stereotypes that, that we can break down um, for people listening that who may, you know, hold a certain stereotype? Like, is there anything in that regard that, that is a misconception that we can potentially sort of address today or is it nothing that maybe sticks out on the top of your head? Well, I think the main thing would just be the idea that we're any different to any other human being. Yeah. You know, like the idea that there even is a stereotype of non-binary people, I think is the yep. stereotype of non-binary people because yep. Yep. we're just like other people. We just happen to not identify as strictly female or strictly male yeah um so yeah i guess that would be my answer to that question yeah no, that, that's completely fair enough and, and i guess to even um with the other discussions about this topic it probably addressed some of those things as well because it's been quite um quite varied yeah um and we've gone in a few different directions so um there's definitely a lot of a lot of food for thought um for our listeners um yeah with your with your great insight and Moving back to the gangster scene now, um, are there any exciting plans for 2021 in the future? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm looking forward to making stuff for winter because winter is my favourite season. Um, winter is coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this yeah, time for yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, and just kind of I'm looking forward to also working around like in the last year, you know, I guess a lot of people have been looking at that kind of stuff with the COVID stay home SID show, um, but really working yeah. into finding a new way of um, working, like finding yeah. a better and healthier work-life balance. Um, okay. I think as you would know with running your own business, it can be pretty full-on sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, um, cool. And I've had a bit of a bad pattern in the past of really pushing myself really hard um, because of those societal ideas of like you have no value unless you're achieving things, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I've been really kind of working on like undoing that conditioning and trying to find a much healthier balance in terms of doing the things that I want to do and achieving what I want to do for Gangster C while also actually looking after my health and actually living my life and, you know, doing some of the things that I think we ought to be doing as humans, yeah. spending time with friends and family and being in nature and growing things and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, fascinating. It definitely sounds like you're taking a more mindful approach to, to 2021 and and the, and the years ahead and um, yeah, I echo a lot of those sentiments that, that you've said there because uh, it can be very chaotic. 
uh, journey having your own business and um, it's great to see that um, you've, you've um, taken some destructive learnings from um, it sounds like maybe maybe a bit of burnout in the past or you've yeah um, yeah yeah because yeah, it can definitely happen yeah <laughs> um, for sure yeah yeah awesome well um, a big big thank you for your time today um you know definitely learned so much about uh, your journey um you know your humbling um sort of background and then also just discussing a lot more about the lgbtqi community the non-binary movement it's um it's been fantastic it's been um yeah heartwarming and um, i'm very grateful for your insights thank you thank you so much for listening it really does mean the world if you like what you heard please leave a nice review And if you have any feedback or want to recommend a guest, and yes, that can include you love yourself, please email me at jordanoutstridestore.com.au.